This is Paul Rossi for Chalkboard Heresy. And our guest today is Leslie Elliott. Uh, Leslie uh, studying at, a, at the Clinical Mental Health uh, Counseling Program in Antioch uh, College. Now, there's a couple different Antiochs, right? This was the one in, in Seattle. Is that right? I started out at the Seattle program in 2019. And right. In 20, I, I transferred to an affiliated program in uh, New England, it's their New England online program. So I've I've been at uh, at two of their. Oh, okay. Was that because of the virtual... pandemic? No, it was uh, due to some problems within the program. I was already uh, pretty frustrated with some things at that point, but I'd taken enough credits that I would lose them if I tried to transfer to an outside school. And, uh -huh. uh, and transferring within the program seemed like it was an opportunity to try to see if I could um well that gets in the weeds real quick but yeah no that's good um and then currently now you're a, a wellness coach is that yeah, right yeah i um i opened up a, a a coaching practice last year about this time last year and um i wanted to find a way to use my counseling skills i've also got a health coaching certification and i sort of i like to take an an integrative approach to to wellness and mental health as a mind body sort of phenomenon. So um, I don't really know what to call myself. I've been using coach, wellness coach, counselor is taken. So uh, mm -hmm. I don't love the word coach, but it's, it's recognized. And so I'm just working alongside people to be a support. That's good. Yeah. I, I did some uh, counseling or I had, I was counseled myself for mm -hmm. a couple of years. It was really helpful. Uh, I went to a, it was a psychotherapy program. It was called mm -hmm. I think, uh, NPAP in in uh, Manhattan. Um, it was really, it can be so helpful to to talk with somebody. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was it was invaluable for me for a couple of years. This was before I got into teaching, mm -hmm. um, and it really it it really um, made that actually possible since I was mm -hmm. going through some depression at the time, and it really helped out a lot. Um, so how did you get interested in counseling? Were you, was this something you always wanted to do or, or you? Um, I, you know, I, I think I, uh, I first became interested in it when I was in undergrad. Um, I had been planning to go to law school and I did go to law school after undergrad. Um, and I, I was told, uh, at the time when I was trying to pick a major, I just needed to pick something, finish undergrad so you can go into law school. And I was advised to pick something that was writing intensive. And so I chose psychology and I became really fascinated with the study of human behavior. And I was in a, um, I was at a university where I was able to take some of their uh, master's level courses for undergraduate credit. And so I found it very interesting. It was a clinical program and the clinical psychology program really looked down at counseling psychology as, as more of like a soft science that was mm. not as respectable. And so um, at the time, I, I sort of toyed with the idea, but ended up going on to law school and finding that I didn't, I didn't like it very much. It wasn't a good fit for me. And I, I pretty quickly wanted to reverse course and look into a graduate program for counseling. But um, what attracted me to it was probably what you said there about um, how helpful it is to have somebody to talk with. And I feel like a lot of us are, it, it's, it's, it can be hard to find 
someone who is really going to listen to you and help you work through your, your problems. And it really helps to verbally process sometimes. And I think that we can be pretty disconnected in our culture from the opportunity to really do a deep dive on ourselves. I mean, it's a big burden to a friend for one thing, if you think about um, all the unloading we sometimes need to do. And so having the opportunity to participate in that guided introspection with someone and help them to tease apart their goals and their, their issues and concerns. I think it's an honor to be able to be present for something like that. And it can be incredibly helpful. So that was what really drew me to counseling. Yeah, totally. Um, I, it makes me think, you know, when did you going into this program in 2019, was it always, did it from the beginning, did it seem like it was infused with social justice ideology or was that something that, that kind of got increasingly worse as, as a, or more intense, let's say, uh, as the program went on? Both really. It was present from the beginning. I didn't really understand what it was. I didn't know this, this social, I didn't know social justice was an ideology when I started this program. Um, I was out of school for a while. I had left law school in uh, 2010 and um, took some time off. I have two kids that are young. I have two older kids. And then I've had two since um, since then. So I was mom and kind of being home with my kids. And I was working part-time for a natural medicine clinic and just not really in the, um, I didn't have my finger on the pulse when it came to this. So I, I, uh, when the school, they, they had social justice in their mission statement, but that sounded like a, you know, kind of a mild and vague and positive thing. And I didn't hear it as, as a dog whistle or as a, uh, it didn't mean anything to me beyond just social justice. It sounded like a good, a positive thing we want um, to promote equal opportunities for people. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first thing I really noticed was the gender pronouns the the asking people to identify themselves using third person pronouns and that was kind of strange and it really it it was a red flag to me that there's something unhealthy seeming about this psychology program where we're we're asking people to do something that seemed uh patently unhealthy un unmentally sound but um i guess i sort of felt like this was a social trend that i was seeing pop up and I, it didn't run me off. Mm -hmm. And the first couple of courses I had were pretty good courses where we, we learned some sound therapeutic principles, counseling skills. And um, it was not until we, uh, my second quarter or semester, I can't remember what system that school was on. I had an assigned course for, uh, it was basically a DEI training in the guise of uh, a core psychology course. And mm -hmm. this is where it really ramped up and became apparent that there was something really um, different about what was being taught. Hmm. So, so you, so it was the pronouns to start out with the pronouns, uh -huh. um, <clears throat> pronouns. It's funny. You just made me think of something strange about pronouns, but I, I never thought of before, but <clears throat> this idea that you should be, you should be uh, treated the way you want to be treated rather than by some objective standard and that could that can sometimes be good and it can sometimes be bad mm -hmm. um, then they're mm -hmm. also they're also compelling you to use 
to to identify yourself with your pronouns did you did you have i'm presuming you you're a you she she and her did you have did you have she slash her did you have to put that on all your on all your communications uh we were asked to and i just didn't okay so yeah. um i wouldn't do it i we i came in for a group interview when i was considering the school i was looking at a couple of different programs at the time and during that initial interview, we were just sitting around in a circle. It was a couple of instructors and a handful of students being interviewed together. And it, they, they had us introduce ourselves and asked us um, directly to, to state our pronouns. And this was the first time I'd ever encountered this. And I felt on the spot and under pressure. And I, I did, I said, she, her, mm. but it felt, uh, it, it just felt very wrong. And I haven't done it since. I, I'm not sure if I caved in one of my classes, but I, I think I learned pretty quickly to say I have no special requests. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I just, yeah, I didn't want to participate in that. It seems so. Uh, it just it's, it, it's such a, I wrote a piece on this where I kind of parsed it and gave all the reasons why I think it's really unhealthy, but to, mm -hmm. to put your identity in somebody else's hands for one thing and require affirmation back of how you see yourself. Mm -hmm. I, I think it says it's almost as ridiculous as, as having to state your adjectives, you know, what, what do you, what are your adjectives? Yeah. And actually I, I just saw something last week that someone actually, uh, there, it was one of these teachers on lives of TikTok that was saying, mm -hmm. you know, one of my students asked me what my adjectives were and I was, I felt so affirmed. <laughs> oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah, it's a real thing. That, um, oh, wow, <clears throat> I didn't know that. I thought it was uh, like a, I thought it was being funny there, but that's no, for real. Yeah, I think, um, so. <clears throat> I think you know it's funny. Have you heard about the platinum rule? Mm -mm. <clears throat> well, there's this idea of the gold, you know, the golden rule where okay. you treat others the way you want to be treated. Mm -hmm. um, but this is seen as now there's kind of a movement. Um, that this is not enough, that the golden rule actually falls short. Because okay. if if I treat you the way you want to be, the way I want to be treated, right? Well, what if you don't want to be treated the way I, I would treat myself? Mm. So somehow, you know, I'm not, I'm not falling over myself to, to, to please you, mm -hmm. to gratify your sense of, uh, to your reality. Mm -hmm. um, and that it's, it's sort of seen as an extra step going above and beyond and, and morally superior to the golden rule. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, which, which, absurd. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I, when I heard it for the first time, I was like, yeah, you know, why not? What's wrong with that? Why, why isn't it okay to, to, wouldn't you want to treat people the way they wanted to be treated? Mm -hmm. And then I thought of like, well, the problem with that is that what if I don't, you know, the, the, the flip side of that is if I'm not treated the way that I want to be treated, well, then you've wronged me. You mm -hmm. have failed to to live by this rule, which is of a superior moral caliber, mm -hmm. and therefore I can be offended if you don't treat me the way mm -hmm. I, that I demand to be treated. It's it's actually kind of monstrous, but I didn't I didn't really think of it that way until I turned it around as a de, as a demand or an expectation mm -hmm. that I would put on others. Yeah, because um, my my first thought is you know how can I how could I be a better person? Mm -hmm. And you know I think that it's it's incredibly manipulative. And it could be completely abused. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and you know, if, if the golden rule falls short, um, well, then you may not, you know, 
where the golden rule falls short by that same metric is okay maybe maybe you don't want to be treated the way i want to treat myself and that's okay but mm -hmm. like it's not like this this overlapping of expectations where now we we have to treat each other the way we want to be treated mm -hmm. or else it's a moral failing that's very yeah. interesting to me well and it seems like it's impossible to keep up with something like that beyond maybe a couple of intimate relationships i mean we sort of navigate our more intimate relationships in that way anyway you know where you you get to know somebody and you know they're sensitive about this or that or that they really prefer it if you speak to them directly about you know whatever so we do tend to do that within within the the context of those most personal and important relationships but at the point where you're supposed to remember everybody's particularities and everybody's different i mean even just the pronouns alone is is very hard to expect people to navigate on behalf of others and I, I, I've been astounded that it's caught as much traction as it has. Yeah. And so, um, so after the pronouns, you said there was this class, which it seemed like it was a bait and switch, right? Like it was yeah. seemed to be like a survey class, but it was actually, or, or a general class, but it's actually a DEI class. Yes. And I, I didn't realize that until later, that was sort of an awareness that dawned on me when I was seeing these DEI programs sort of rolled out in, especially like in corporate um, trainings and, and stuff, workplaces, that that was actually what we were subjected to. It was a class that really stood out in its lack of um, psychological depth. Mm. Uh, so I, at this point, I think I had taken maybe three or four courses in this program. And uh, a decade previous, I had been through an undergraduate education in psychology where I had an opportunity to take some master's level courses. And, and even my undergraduate courses were pretty good. And, and, and interesting and, and had a, a, a depth and a nuance to them that, that I had always found really intriguing. And so this course was very striking in its contrast to that. So one of the first things we were taught first day was this addressing model, which I, I talked about in the first video that I put out, mm -hmm. which uses the word addressing as an acronym for um, a, a group of demographic characteristics. So age, disability, religion, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, indigenous status, national origin, and, and gender, it, something like that. Right. And we were taught that these are the characteristics that you're supposed to um, basically create a matrix of these for yourself and for your clients. And they trained us to sort of talk about ourselves this way. So you're supposed to talk about yourself and say, well, I'm a white cisgendered, um, you know, whatever it would be. So it would be, you'd, you'd talk about yourself or um, white, cisgendered and uh, bisexual, or, you know, you, you sort of list these things and this is how you talk about mm -hmm. yourself. And at the same time, you're performing um, a, a binary anal analysis where you're saying for each one of these categories, I can receive a score of marginalized or privileged. And then we, you sort of tally these up and find out how you stack up against other people that you interact with. So this was what we were taught in a graduate level psychology program. And I thought this is so, this is just, I, there aren't words for how bizarre this is. It felt like idiocracy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, how is that what it means to be a person? And how does that have any bearing on like the complex interplay between you and a client? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, 
Well, first, I have so many questions. So the first question is, who developed this model and where did it even come from? Is it some, yeah. an instrument that somebody... I think Hayes is the name. I'm not sure. You can look this up online and, and, and find it. Um, I think it's called the Hayes Addressing Model. So the researcher or the writer or whoever this person is. Okay. So, so but I mean, so imagine that I do this process, right? And I've sliced mm -hmm. and diced myself. I've, I've addressed myself. Yeah. I've addressed the client, mm -hmm. right? I, I've given myself marginalized and privileged scores. How does that um, how is that supposed to play out in an interaction? Um, I think that it's supposed to be something that that we're encouraged to to discuss, and so it's uh, it's meant to be a a process of thinking about how we fit into the world. And and so my understanding this is clearly more of a sociological concept. You know, this is like applied demography, really, what we're doing here mm -hmm. with the addressing model. So um, from a sociological perspective, it does make sense to look at these kind of categories and talk about how people move through the world, how we interact as groups of individuals. It, it, makes, it does make some sense, but from a psychological individual perspective, it's, it's pretty meaningless. It, it's potentially meaningful, but each of these could be a jumping off point, each one of these demographic categories where you could learn a lot about a person based on their experiences with these. But to just take as face value that there's a binary equation, you know, with an M or a P attached to it is, is pretty crazy. So what it, 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 it seems to be a, this is, this is a program of, of teaching counselors to teach their clients to try to see the world this way. Okay. And so there's not really a therapeutic outcome so much as a re-education of thought and, and of how we think about ourselves in terms of privilege and marginalization. So was there, was there any effort made to try to connect? Okay, let's say that this re-education mm -hmm. is successful and the client, you know, mm -hmm. has a awareness, a sudden awareness of, okay, I'm, I'm a privileged, I'm privileged because I'm white or maybe mm -hmm. I'm, I'm marginalized because I'm a woman or whatever, but how does that connect how are they supposed to use that to connect to their problem, like their individual, like their bereavement or their relationship issues or whatever, you know, whatever psychological, the reason why they're there? Yeah, this course didn't offer anything like that. This particular it's astonishing. That is it incredible. Is really crazy. Yeah, it's they had no, there was no way to connect it to the actual problem the individual is facing no, or no. their way or their or their relationship like i could like you said it could be a good jumping off point right my you right. know maybe my ethnicity is relevant yeah it could I'm be italian you know my father's italian there are certain cultural things that might yeah informed my growth as a male in this patriarchal mm -hmm. whatever yeah um, but maybe not maybe it's got nothing to do with my issue in this particular way and also even if it did what matters is my relationship to that right yeah. now you know so if let's say other people put a kind of social identity on me but i'm not i'm not merely a function of that identity i may have a relationship to that identity mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. social perception mm -hmm. but that's not that's not like definitive that doesn't tell me who i am um any more than you know if someone said you know you you should you know everyone thinks you should jump off a bridge why aren't you jumping off a bridge like maybe right. I, maybe i don't so I, it just seemed it's just astonishing that they didn't even connect it to 
the individuals and they did, did I, I i'm really woefully uh, ignorant about these clinical programs do they ever do they do role playing do they ever have practical like do they do you try to mm-hmm. engage with clients in this way do, do they have anything like that yeah so lecture it's the, uh, that so the, what you're saying what about did they connect it this this was what really stood out to me and it was really surreal this class stood out in stark contrast to our other courses where we were learning other we were learning um like I've studied addictions and and advanced addictions therapy. I've studied, um, you know, your standard stuff like um, assessments and diagnosis and um, all manner of things, theories. I could probably just list the courses, but these are all fairly good courses with what feels like a social justice attachment to them, where every paper that you have to write, every case study you you have to do, they like throw in a paragraph about the addressing model and how all of these um, demographic categories might be impacting the client. And I've been able to do those fairly without, without feeling really ethically challenged by it because like, like you just said, there are ways in which all of these things could potentially impact the client's experience depending on context. And you know, so you, can, you could write a paragraph on each one of those for, for any case study and say, well, if the client was this race and this was in the, in, you know, how they grew up, then it could potentially mean this, or it could mean much less or whatever. So it's not like they're ridiculous topics. It's just that focus on them is inappropriate. So this course, this, this multicultural perspectives course, which was what it was called, did not really, they did not really attempt to tie it into the other teachings. And and it was taught at a very surface level. We were taught to broach race with our clients and that this was one of the, the first things that we should do with our clients is have a discussion about race in session, which again, that contrasted with what we were being taught in our other courses. But we were told um, that, especially if the counselor and client are of different ethnic backgrounds from one another, our, our job as part of our getting to know them is to talk to them about how they feel about that. And so that would look like, uh, it could be gender also. I, I might have to broach the differences between us. So I might have to talk, have a conversation with you. How does it feel for you as a man to be sitting with me as a woman, as your counselor? And then depending on how you respond to that, I'm supposed to dig in deeper. And we're supposed to have a conversation about these things deeper until we get to a point where it's a problem for you. Or I've encouraged you to start to see it as a problem and to see the division and to really become, with race, they, they talk about it in terms of racial identity salience. Exactly. So making the individual more aware of how race has impacted whatever issues and challenges they're having in their lives. And so this could be convincing someone that the fact that they married a person of a different race, like I've, I've seen this in the program with an Asian American woman who had become convinced during this program that her own internalized white supremacy had led her to marry a white man. And now she couldn't believe that she had done this and, and she was questioning all of her decisions. And so, um, yeah, it doesn't tie so, in very well to, to, to good therapy at all. And they didn't really make an effort to do so. With the, with the, with the actual problems that I imagine someone is, is, mm-hmm. is experiencing that would, that would cause them to seek counseling. This seems to be larding on problems, looking for problems that yeah. may not be relevant. 
to their lives or um, making things worse, frankly. Um, yeah. to, to this, this, but it is, it is indicative of this sort of critical social justice thing where you're just constantly problematizing. You're creating problems that fit a certain paradigm uh-huh. And using that as as the explanatory model for everything um, that mm-hmm. you're going through, mm-hmm. uh, it reminds me. You just reminded me of my school that I used to teach at. Um, it was a high school, private high school, that was part of an association of 1,800 schools. And this association had materials that they would send to all the heads of schools and the board to sort of teach them how to deal with parents. And one of the things in their in their handbook called Hopes and Fears is a is a chapter on how, you know, the black parent. So they mm-hmm. they break okay. them up yeah. into these categories and it's kind of like the addressing model for for school yeah. administrators. And they explicitly say the black parent will never fully trust your school. Oh god. Um, so, you know, I, what would it be like to be That's so uh, insulting? Yeah, to be, you know, because of because of their expectations around your privilege and so it really is the same very similar type of thing yeah I mean, what what is it are, are where did they tell these counselors that they should at least tell their clients that they they're using this model so they can go in informed oh, no this is one of the things that is that really stands out about this is it's it's foundational to the way that they see this see the world see social interaction and i there's not, it's not, okay, we're a CRT informed program, but there are other models out there. Like, like you would find with like therapeutic modalities or like we're right. young or we're whatever we are. So this is, this is just, you are, we, this is how you do it in order to be socially just. And if you're not doing it this way, the answer is that you're white, you're a white supremacist. So it's, it's very much our way or the highway. In fact, I, my if you if you watch my first video it's eight minutes long it's not very long and i lay out my case and i've got several subsequent videos i think i've done like maybe 10 or 11 of them and one of the final ones that i've put up shows antioch's response to me in 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 response to the things that i've said in my videos and they come right out and in plain language accuse me of white supremacy. I saw that they call, they call you white supremacist. Yeah, and it's that is that is uh, accounted for within their framework because you're either anti-racist, which means that you are directly targeting whiteness and trying to uh, perform this retribution, this sort of like balancing the scales. And if you're asking for neutrality, you are a white supremacist because there's no ideological neutrality for these, for these, these people. So, I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to actually put this in the podcast so people can see this, this official yeah. response. Yeah. It, it's the AUNE and AUS allied counseling department. Committed yeah, that's Antioch, Seattle and Antioch, New England. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was wondering what those, what those acronyms were, but they say, you know, we are aware, and this is their response after you came you, you put major videos. Mm-hmm. We are aware of material posted online by one person mm-hmm. expressing white supremacy, transphobia, yeah. and other harmful ideologies in direct opposition to our professional ethical guidelines as counselors. I want to get into that at some point. You know, how do they justify this model within the their larger mission mm-hmm. and ethical? It's this thing which is completely unethical. How do they square that circle? Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the end of it, they actually say, you know, they tell people not to watch it. 
Yeah. Like they literally say, don't even watch this person. It would be harmful. I don't watch, know. Watching this misdirected video will have the unintended consequences of giving more power to this voice. This voice, yeah. So, yeah, this is just total fundamentalism. I mean. It is, absolutely. And I felt like when I when I read that, it was sent to me by another student because they've, they've um, blocked a lot of my access. I'm still officially a student there, but at least it seems like it. I, I still have an email account. <laughs> And they invited me to register for some for classes next spring, um, but but I don't receive all of the communications anymore, mm. and I don't have access to any of my former coursework or anything like that or the handbook. Um, oh, wow. But this was sent to me by an Antioch student who found me after receiving this, and was curious as to what they were talking about, and uh, and yeah. when I saw this, I thought, wow, they have brilliantly illustrated what I'm talking about, just brilliant. I mean, I couldn't, if, if you didn't understand what I was saying before, if you've listened to what I've said and you read that now, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. We confront, they also say we confront oppression and injustice and bring forth intersectionality in our mm -hmm. teaching mm -hmm. so that future counselors may enter into the, into the profession with the ability to work with diverse individuals, groups, and social systems within a multicultural global community. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, this is the pretty language which mm -hmm. hides the ideology, extremely rigid ideology. Mm -hmm. There, you know, the way that intersectionality has has morphed and become, you know, not just a way of understanding, you know, I guess the imp, you know, different impacts on people, but as a as a way of categorizing people mm -hmm. and slicing and dicing them. Uh, it it is. It's fascinating. And who's this character, Sean Fitzgerald? Is he the, uh, he's the, the CEO, of, right? He's or, the CEO of the New England program and the dean of the counseling, uh, what is it? The counseling psychology and therapy um, department. Okay. Yeah. Because so, he, he personally gave his stamp on this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. And that intersectionality is the, the addressing model is the way to, to look at that that's that's the model that they're using to talk about your intersecting identities if you have more than one marginalized identity then you're you're it's like a compounding of your marginalization and so that's what they're talking mm -hmm. about there so you mentioned again also in one of your videos uh mm -hmm. that you had a professor who was just racist towards white women yeah, that was that same um, that same course. This is the one where this was taught at again. It was taught at such a low intellectual level. It was just mm. uh, really sophomoric, and um, I have said a couple of times that it was like at what you would expect. The level was like an eighth grade assembly, like on how to get along with people. But to teach this stuff to eighth graders would be diabolical. So that's that's the only reason why it wasn't. Um, eighth grade material um but yeah this teacher was uh you know a blonde-haired fair-skinned woman <clears throat> who talked hmm. about white women and i guess maybe she felt like she could do this because she was she can she didn't consider herself white but she considered herself to look white and so she um she called white women becky's basic bitches nothing special she used these terms to talk about how Oh, I know, I know I look like I'm just a Becky, but I'm not actually white. I know I, you know, this was the way she would talk about it. And um, 
she uh, she talked about white women's tears and said she said okay. it was like this. It was almost like it was a, a joke. Like a lot of the class was taught like it was jokes. She she would stand up and she would go, okay, y'all know the one about white women's tears. And if we were like, no, or some people shook mm -hmm. their head, yes, she would say, okay, so white women's tears have been overvalued historically, and it's sort of a manipulation tool. So white women crying, you have to look at that as like a manipulative thing. And, and culturally, it's just been, they've been given way to, and it was these sort of like, um, just these really superficial and like, it was like a caricature. So what does that mean in, in the counseling context? If you have a client who's who, who's a woman who's white who's crying, yeah, are you supposed to think about how? Is, yeah. Are you supposed to assume that somehow this is akin to say a a, a white woman falsely accusing a, a black person of some crime? I mean, I it's mean, ridiculous. Like, I'm sorry, ma'am, I know your father died, but you know, you, your people have used up enough of their tears, so you're gonna have to suck it up. Like, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, and then if you, if, if you as a counselor are a black person and, the, and your client is white and the, and the person cries, are you, yeah, you probably are even more um, encouraged to tell them to shut up or stop crying. Well, I know. <laughs> I, I would imagine that most people, even people trained in programs like this, have enough sense to take in enough of their training that they're not really implementing it this way. Okay. Uh, but I but I think it's criminal to attempt to imprint this on counselors. And I do think that some of it is coming through and some of it is being imprinted. And I think that it's probably, you know, you have this this these programs where there's a lot of this classical foundation being being transmitted along with punctuated like intense bursts of this stuff how does this not seep into your practice i i think that it must i can't i would hope that they aren't so blatant mm -hmm. as, to, as to perform these caricatures on people but it i i am afraid that it is coming through in the therapy and it's not just in um, it doesn't have to be that that uh like that, explicit, it could be unconscious, just a kind of a transference or something. That's you, right. I was looking if, for the word explicit. Yeah, if you're if you're yeah. looking at this client, you know, if you you have this sort of animus against them for trigger, you know, that justifying mm -hmm. trigger in you, then, mm -hmm. you know, I, I frankly I saw that in my own in my own former employment in, in the high school. I had colleagues that would, you know, in private say these mm -hmm. really sort of awful dismissive things about about students, you know, like, oh, the, what do the white boys think? Or, you know, um, you know, that, that guy has, that kid hasn't suffered a day in his life. Yeah. Right? They don't know anything about the person, but they're right. just making this incredibly judgmental mm -hmm. generalization, you know, based on what the color of his skin. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's horrible. And you said that I, I, I heard again, you said that this was at the same teacher who wanted to redefine women as afab people with vulvas that wasn't the teacher oh, that class um that class focused heavily on on race and didn't really get too much into gender um that has come through more in other ways in the program so the program uh like i said the the social justice stuff was heavily heavily uh, 
pushed in that one class, and it's been sort of a token add-on in most of my courses. My human development course um, was where I first heard uh, affirmation of the concept of the trans child. Mm -hmm. And then um, in my human sexuality class, it was that was also a strange course where we were taught that that there have been trans people all throughout history and that children are that, that many of our historical figures are really trans if they were what they call gender non-conforming. So, um, and that just means not being a perfect stereotype, not being a perfect gender stereotype. So these are actual trans people. We have to relook at history through the eyes of transgenderism and also recognize that children are fully able to claim it and, and should be affirmed in a transgender identity. But um, the, where that language about women came in was in a, we get sent offerings for continuing education and different workshops that we can, um, we can take. And, and that's one that's been promoted quite a bit lately is this program uh, uh, for sexual health concerns for AFAB people with vulvas. And mm -hmm. so this is assigned female at birth. And so this, this just promotion of this language, and this goes along with the school's other messages that that ask us to degender everything and so we're supposed to uh, use language um we're not supposed to use mother and father we're supposed to use parents um you know no sister mm -hmm. brother it's just siblings um take the gender off the restrooms and gendered health care uh, they said reproductive health care doesn't have to be uh women's health care it's it's reproductive it's health care for people with uteruses right and i um yeah I, okay this is i think it's a big problem <laughs> personally yeah. i really have a problem with that and what about what about your other people in your cohort did anybody have else have similar concerns so when i was at seattle at the seattle campus i was in person and i didn't really see i didn't see very much i heard a few people um so i spoke up in that particular course i was respectful mm -hmm but I would ask questions and, and try to uh, point out some of the inconsistencies and try to, to just, I, I was kind of in disbelief. So I was just asking, mostly asking questions around why is, why is this the way we're looking at it? And I had people come up to me outside of class or send me emails thanking me for, for saying something. But it, but it was always like you could hear a pin drop if I spoke in class. Oh, yeah, yeah. Chimed in. And um I had a girl, uh, I was still there. I dropped out of the Seattle program two either quarters or semesters after that class. And I had a girl who I'd been in, in that class with me who found me in the uh, break room and came up and thanked me. So apparently she was also feeling it and still thinking about the fact that somebody had spoken up against it at one point. But beyond that, I never, uh, I never saw anybody vocally opposed to it. And uh, when I transferred to the online program, it was really quite a, um, like a, a bubble, I guess. It felt like a very, mm -hmm. um, I, I've not seen anybody. I mean, people are just confessing their white privilege and talking about their, how privileged they are. It's just, it, it feels like a chorus of, yeah. I don't know if that's true, but that's the sense I get. That's what it, yeah, that's the, what I experienced. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they had these white accountability groups yeah. uh, where white people would get together and talk about being white and uh, what they could do about it. 
Yeah, I, I don't know what they talk about because I've never done one of these. Uh -huh. But they started promoting these pretty heavily after after George Floyd's death. Uh -huh. It was, I think that's when it was. It was uh, the BIPOC, which is Black, Indigenous, and People of Color mm -hmm. Affinity Group, and the White Accountability Group. Right. Yeah, we had a white ally and accountability group at mm -hmm. my school, and um, I did go to a couple of them. Uh, they were fascinating. Um, in one of them, I remember. I remember there were white women that's that when they would feel the passion of of social justice, they would actually change their dialect. They would change their mode of speaking, wow. and they would adopt a kind of a. I mean, like a black way of speaking, I don't, I don't like a culturally black rhythm, almost like a preacher, hmm. mo, you know, and so they, you know, and there would be a, a slurring of certain syllables and diphthongs. And the same as, person had been talking differently as previous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Like it would creep into their diction to creep into their their huh. accent a little bit. And I realized that there, this is um, you can't call it performative because I don't think it's I don't think it's conscious. I think it's a kind of a, you know, they're 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 trying to uh, participate in mm. this mm. in this identity, which is this this righteous place. And it, and it's I think if we, I think we really have to kind of see it as an ecstatic kind of yeah. thing, right? Like every religion has its ecstasies, and this is a form of of participation in the great historical movement and your place in it. And, and, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's, that's a big part of what I think is, is driving this. You're talking about the psychology of it. Um, what do you think about that? What, what, what do you think is driving all this from a psychological point of view? I mean, I think that it's many things. I think I've heard a lot of really interesting theories. Um, I have, I have in, in my discussions of it, which I have done just a few, I am trying to stay a little bit more factual and not editorialize as much. Mm -hmm. I want the work to speak for itself. I want this to speak for itself. It's, it's, um, I'm, I'm certainly not the expert on where it comes from. I like where I, I've listened to a lot of James Lindsay. He goes in and, mm -hmm. and um, does analyses of, of postmodernist writings and you can really see the direct line you know mm -hmm. i think that um it is it does seem like it's intended to divide people and cause conflict and this is something i've accused the school of a number of times race baiting because what we're doing is we're really just calling people out and saying uh these people are bad hate them i mean it feels like rwanda you know mm -hmm. it's like this really dangerous um, attempt to stir up animosity between racial groups. Um, but where it comes from within the individual adherence, I think that that is uh, the concept of groupthink, the concept of, like you said, ecstasy. It, that is a really interesting uh, study. I think you could study that forever and, and still have more to learn. But um, yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Those things are at play. I remember, I mean, I went through one of these, these two day full on mm -hmm. trainings all day 
where we broke down our we broke down our privilege and we confessed mm -hmm. to it and we kind of had this come to Jesus moment yeah. with this, we sat in a circle and mm -hmm. and and people cried and and, oh and people kind of it was it 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 really was like a revival meeting. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. um and I you know I kind of got into it. I kind of experienced this. Yeah, okay. when I when I was there and I, you know I, I kind of had that. Oh wow, I'm I'm white. I'm really white. And what does that mean? And and this is my privilege. And it you know it it kind of wore off a couple of weeks later. And then I I remember I went back to it after my logical brain kind of caught up to. I remembered the sequencing of how they did it. And it was it was an organization called the the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, okay. and they really it was very sophisticated psychologically. Wow. It was very cultish in how they how they actually broke it down. They cherry pick certain things from history to create it there to create mm -hmm. the narrative, and then they they put yourself in that narrative, mm -hmm. and and they they lead you sort of like a breadcrumb trail. Yeah. Um, with asking a lot of loaded questions, you know, double, um, double meaning, double binds in the question, yeah, yeah. stuff like that. It's, it's really fascinating. And, um, wow, that is so interesting. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd love to, about that, that to experience? I would what's love to, that? Have you written about that? I haven't. I've, I've, um, I've talked about it a lot. I think I've mm -hmm. had, I've been on some podcasts where I've talked about okay. it. Um, and I, I don't really have the, the the academic background to really speak with authority on what's going on there um mm -hmm. but i've been reading um some books about cults and and how mm -hmm. they actually do do the number on people um mm -hmm. and it really is it's very similar to that it's similar to the chinese communist party what i've been reading about how they they did their thought reform mm -hmm. um other people have, have noticed these similarities yeah um, and you're I know you probably can't talk about your current clients with any specificity, but do you, have any of them sought you out because of they know of your story and they know what you went through and maybe there's an affinity there? Yeah, I have had. So I, for a little while, the, the group Counterweight had mm -hmm. a mental health peer support arm. And so I was volunteering there and I, I did that for, I don't know, some months. It, it was a it was kind of a short-lived project and then I guess they decided to go a different direction. But um, I, at that point, saw groups and individuals. So we would do group peer support and also individual um, peer support. So it wasn't therapy. It wasn't mental health. Like we weren't doing any diagnosis or treatment. We were just there to listen and, mm -hmm. and help strategize and talk about what was going on. And I think that there's a growing need for that. Um, I've actually been working with a couple of colleagues uh, Jody Shaw, you know Jody. Oh yeah, Jody's we were friends. Yeah, and a couple of other two other people from CTA Critical Therapy Antidote on um, on building a a peer support platform online community because there is so much growing demand for people who are are being um, really hurt by by these ideologies. So, and I've had I have since I've started putting out videos, I've had a number of people contact me. I've my email is I'm trying to keep up with it. I'm getting probably easily a hundred emails a day right now. Um, wow. Some of them are just like comments on things like, like on my Substack, And then I've got tons of YouTube comments as well, but my email is a little bit crazy right now. And I'm, I'm not very good at 
organizing it. But it's I've had, so hard, yeah, to keep up with that. Yeah, anything yeah. from just a comment or just a supportive statement to people who are looking for someone to work with them from a non-ideological non perspective, so. Yeah, totally. I, I, you know, I, I struggle with that myself after I came out with my piece and, and you mentioned critical therapy antidote that's critical therapy antidote.org. Mm -hmm. Is that, and I remember, um, that's been around a while now. It's been a couple of years, right? Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting. Uh, we'll post the links and, you know, I yeah. urge everyone to check it out. There's great stuff on there. Yeah. Very good. There's yeah. Wonderful um, articles, videos, um, and different pieces on there from testimonies from students and counselors to um, more well-researched articles. And they also have a directory of members who provide um, therapy services without uh, critical social justice ideology. And so it's a great members, uh, a great place to become a member if you are in the helping professions. Mm -hmm. and it's a great resource for prospective clients as well. Oh, that's great. Um, did you, I, I, just a couple other questions. I'm, I, I'm mindful of the time, but I want to make sure I get to these. Did you, did you ever speak with someone who was a client who went through a, a therapy session where they were using the addressing model? And it, I'm just, I, I'm just trying to put myself in that room where, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I come in for a specific reason or I come in for what I think is, you know, I understand that you can have an unconscious, mm -hmm. you know, reason that may be different than why you came in, but, but then to be sort of steered and gaslit into this, this paradigm, which mm -hmm. doesn't really fit. I mean, mm -hmm. I cannot imagine like reg, like, a, you know, people who aren't well versed in this going through this and, and not, feeling like it's jarring and, mm -hmm. and really n incommensurate with what's going to help them. And yeah. I just, you know, is there any, is there any data driven research on this being helpful to people? Has anyone done any studies of it? I can't uh, imagine that there could be. I, I mean, I, what I think I would imagine that for some people who feel like they have been, um, have, they have had, the short end of the stick socially, who feel like they would be able to identify with the, say, the marginalized profile. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of people who are going to feel that way. I can imagine that, that for them, for a person like that, this could potentially feel really validating. Mm -hmm. Because if you see yourself presented in that model and somebody's saying, I can see you and I can see how hard that must have been for you. And mm -hmm. I recognize that this has been a problem. Well, then that would be, I think that that probably would be very helpful for that person. Just like anytime somebody can recognize what we're going through and really understand it with us, that's therapeutic and, and wonderful and a great experience. So I, I wouldn't discount that it, that it could potentially be helpful to someone mm -hmm. who, who resonates with that. But for a lot of people, I mean, it's just asking them to take on a way of thinking that seems anti-resilience. It seems like a mm -hmm. pro-fragility, pro-resentment. Um, uh, you know, it just fosters resentments. It fosters guilt. So I can't imagine that it's very good. And I, I have worked with one client who um, was 
that was one of the things that this person was bringing up. This was a person who, um, as a university student, very intelligent, very high functioning, did have some learning disabilities and um, had gone into therapy for issues around isolation and depression and was the therapist focused on these on the victimhood based on these uh, disabilities where this person's own narrative was was one of overcoming was mm -hmm. one of being strong and being a a high performing and um, really excellent fo focused person despite these challenges and so this was really a narrative that was in opposition of the person's self-concept mm -hmm. and the therapist wasn't responsive to that and was continuing to sort of beat the victimhood drum and this has left the client feeling um gaslit and and frustrated and uh and with a new set of of concerns that that were, were not present when the client entered the therapy space in the first place that's really interesting because i you reminded me of a uh, there was a training that I watched online by mm -hmm. a math um, uh, a DEI consultant. It was brought mm -hmm. in to help um, or, to, or to, to ostensibly help, mm -hmm. but to, um, you know, to, to, to lead a course on people in the math department that were in engineering that was, that were very high performing mm -hmm. individuals. And, you know, her claim was that if you are a marginalized person, Mm -hmm. who racially or gender or otherwise that was, you know, that had that attitude where you were going to succeed no matter when you were going to perform, you know, and you were going to, you know, go for it mm -hmm. and not sort of see yourself in, in this racial salient, racially salient way mm -hmm. um, that you were going to die an early death. Oh, wow. And, and this, this trainer, yeah, this told it to the, to the audience, like these people, Wow. Who don't believe race is a factor, then they push themselves. They just kill themselves early. They die wow. early. And she claimed to have some studies that back wow. that up. But oh, I mean, what what awesome. is that message, right? You're killing yourself you're if you're not yeah. if if you don't play play by this this game. Yeah. Um. I I I'm really glad that you did that. You came out and spoke about this because I had no idea that this was infecting a profession that mm -hmm. is like so important for people it was for me mm -hmm. and to see it perverting and deranging mm -hmm. with i can't imagine the consequences and that leads me to my other question how do you have a sense of how prevalent this addressing model is or so sort of social justice mania in general in, in therapy and counseling well it's um, increasingly taking over the the organizational bodies, so KCREB and uh, the ACA, the APA, we see this language around cultural competency. And this is yeah. another of these kind of Orwellian words or, or phrases because cultural competency could mean anything. It's a very vague sounding, but vaguely positive sounding term, but it, it encompasses these principles, these like uh, the addressing, the intersectionality and mm -hmm and the CRT kind of mindset. So um, it's increasingly taking over at the, at the organizational and licensure level. So I think we're gonna see it more and more. And 
my the feedback I'm getting from other professionals and other students is that Antioch has been uh, a bit extreme in how explicitly they're pushing some of this, but by no means unique. I've heard other other universities uh, students are describing programs that are equally extreme, and then uh, many more who say that this was touched on but it was a little bit more nuanced and subtle. So these principles are coming in. And I think that this university has a reputation for being sort of at the vanguard of, of these progressive movements. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we see it more and more. And, mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, it's uh, it is a, an attempt to explicitly remake the role of the counselor from being a, a, a mental health support and treatment resource to being an agent of social change and mm -hmm. clients as access points to re-educate, um, re-educate people for a larger societal purposes. Yeah. They, they want to transform society and, yes. this, and, and the, the individual client is, is a, is a means to that end. I think that's pretty yeah. clear from this. You mentioned CACREP, C-A-C-R-E-P. Mm -hmm. And I saw that in the, in that, um, uh, AUNE and AUS commitment to social justice. They mentioned CAC, what does that stand for? Oh gosh, uh, CACREP. It's it's it says further we have received specialized accreditation from CACREP. This is the this is the scariest thing. Mm -hmm. Ensuring that all nine hundred plus counseling programs offered by four hundred plus universities under accreditation teach multicultural counseling, yeah. mm -hmm. social justice, and advocacy. Mm -hmm. Advocacy, yeah, for social justice, not patient right, right. <laughs> um so and of course antioch is committed to that um mm -hmm. i think that i think that these professional associations are you know once they go it's 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 everywhere it's metastasizes well, it's, like, it's like they're being eaten out from the inside you know they're yeah. they're hollowed out by by this and it sort of gets its fingers into everything that they're doing and so what's what's next for you, Leslie? What what do you are you close to finishing your degree or? Mm -hmm. But they yeah. wanted you to sign something, right? They wanted you to. Yeah, so I have just a few classes left to take, and then I need to do an internship, and then I should be done. But yeah. uh, one of the core courses that I need to take, I've tried to take it twice, and both times I've been asked to sign a civility pledge in order to proceed. It's the first. Uh, the first assignment is to publicly post that I agree with the civility pledge, and I don't agree with it. I it is just uh, it is just a pledge to the social justice framework, and I won't sign it. And I also um, I feel that I have reason to think that if I were to publicly post that I don't agree with it, that I would be under uh, intense scrutiny throughout the quarter, if I were even allowed to take the course at all. So I've dropped and I, so I've, I've considered myself unable to at least take this one course. I've tried to take it with two different professors. Mm -hmm. The civility pledge has also been added to the syllabus. So it's there implicitly, even if I don't explicitly sign. Um, mm -hmm. I um, have, there, I have a number of problems with the school. I filed a grievance and it was dismissed. And then I tried to appeal and my appeal was ignored. Uh, I am, I am so frustrated with what I see as, as blatant corruption in the program that 
I am prepared to just walk away from it. I would love to finish the degree, um, but I'm not sure what happens next. I've sent them, they, uh, I received a letter from the school asking if I was going to sign up for classes in the spring. And uh, I responded back asking them to make a public apology for the, the accusations that they've made against me and a lot and letting them know also that I will continue to speak out whether I'm enrolled or not. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if they'll even invite me back. We'll, we'll kind of cross that bridge when we come to it, but I I'd love to finish the degree. I feel very conflicted about putting more money and energy into a program that I think is not, uh, not doing good things and is doing bad things. Mm -hmm. So, I have a coaching practice right now. I feel very good in that. I, it'd be lovely to have that master's, but you know, I think that I can have a good career without it if I need to. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And I don't really, I've been, I've received so much communication that I've started a, a series of conversations, recorded conversations with other people who've had similar experiences to put up on my YouTube channel. I don't know if the YouTube thing is going to be a long-term project for me. I'll just sort of feel it out as we go and see where it, see where it leads. I don't really love being on camera. So, yeah. you know, yeah. it's kind of weird. Yeah, it's hard. It's, it's, it takes getting used to. And so you're saying these are recorded, these are on your YouTube channel. Um, I posted the first one this week. Okay. And they, they're conversations. This is fascinating conversations with people who have encountered social justice mania. I like to think of it as a mania because I, I know it's, I'm not a psych, psychologist, but it, it feels like, like a kind of, um, not a clinical mania, but, but that sort of like a hysteria. Yeah. Hysteria. Yeah. yeah that's that's yeah. kind of like what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, and wow. Are they, that's, that's, I definitely gotta, I definitely gonna check that out and we will post, um, we will post links to, to your YouTube, your Substack is the radical center. Mm -hmm. Um, and I see you have, um, I read, I read that letter to Antioch, Antioch's response to you is there. Does Antioch, does Antioch take public funds? Is there, are there any legal ways redress that you can take with them? Well, I'm raising money for a lawsuit okay. and, um, I have been speaking, I've spoken with a couple of attorneys. I haven't settled on anybody for representation yet, but I am working on it. And it sounds like I have some very good claims. Um, so we're. I have, a, I have a good list of claims <laughs> that I uh -huh. that I can uh, that I can file under, and um, I mean that they, they've got a they just gave me a very good defamation claim, and mm -hmm. so that's not mm -hmm. that's not one I guess that that I would be winning any big money off of. It's more of a nominal mm -hmm. thing, but um, I'm looking to get my I want my tuition back. That's what I want. Yeah, I want to pay me back for. The tuition that I spent on what was supposed to be an education program, but what turned into an indoctrination indoctrination camp. So um, that's what I'm trying to do, and I and I'm hoping that if I can prevail in this, it'll set a good precedent and it'll um, force some accountability into the system. Yeah, I mean, I would. I, I, I'm not a lawyer, but I think that demanding that you sign some civility pledge, mm -hmm. you know, when you're almost done with your degree, mm -hmm. I mean, what is that? And if you yeah. don't sign it, you're not going to get it. That I mean, yeah. is that is that essentially what's going on? If you don't sign this, you can't complete the course. And yeah, I mean, it's it's a little bit more subtle than that because it wasn't like handed down to me from administration, but it's okay. it's a functional requirement of the course. Mm -hmm. if, if all the teachers who teach a particular class 
require students to take to do this as a required assignment, then that's that's the result is that you can't you can't pass go. Wow. So, yeah. I have one last question, which is I should have asked before, but I just wanted to get it out there. Um, social justice has a particular theory of identity. It's about social identity, this, the it's sort of like social constructed identity, but it's, it's extremely dominant in individuals. So even if they don't think they align with it, that somehow they're still manifesting it. And that, and that, you know, waking up to your true, your identity is becoming aware of your social expectations that you embody in one way or another. Um, there are other theories of identity, developmental theories by other you know, psychologists mm -hmm. over the past century, right? Like there's, there's James Marcia and there, you know, I don't know, I'm not super familiar with all of them, but, but they involve the individual developing an identity, which is functional in society, which helps them cope with challenges, mm -hmm. overcome those challenges, represent themselves in a positive way for others. Do mm -hmm. they, did they ever try to integrate any of these other development theories of identity with did they mention any of them or so you know it's another place where there's there's a huge contradiction so like we studied erickson we studied piaget mm -hmm. you know we we there are other developmental models being proposed but then this is being taught as an overlay and so Again, you have that one course where they teach you this really explicitly and really heavily. And then the communications from the school at large, the uh, mostly it's communications from administration and continuing uh, education and workshop programs that you can take. But there is a constant message of this social justice. And it is there's not any attempt to explain when did this new way of thinking come about and why have we adopted this and why do we why do we favor it over other models and how how do we explain the contrasts between like our our racial identity formation models and more long-standing respected uh, developmental models mm -hmm. that we're still teaching so there's no attempt to really bridge that gap or explain what the contradiction how explain away the contradiction nor is there an explanation of, of how and why this became to be so fundamentally adopted. But it does feel, it does feel religious because it does feel like it, uh, you are, as you can see just by, by looking at the response to me, you're a heretic and you are, uh, you know, you, you are you are a liar and a, and a white supremacist and whatnot. If Homophobe, you, if, a transphobe, all of the things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's really indicative. If they can't, if they can't integrate this, they just kind of grafted it on to the. Yeah, you yeah. Know, and they, there's no there's no attempt to really take it seriously academically. I don't think. I think that it's sort of this moral imperative that it doesn't fit in anywhere, but everyone's bowing mm -hmm. and saying this, saying the things. Um, and you're supposed to use it in your practice yeah. on, a, on real people. Yeah. Um, and the research on it and the, the, the materials that they use to support it are very, uh, I, I think that they're very questionable, you know, I mean, in yeah. terms of their academic rigor and their quality, they seem like, I mean, you've got Robin D'Angelo is one of their, their 
favorites to cite. Ibram X. Kendi is another favorite. It's That's part of our coursework. And then this other guy whose name is not as popular, people don't know him as widely, but he's been incredibly influential in the field of, of counseling psychology, Daryl Wing Sue. Hmm. And uh, his work is, um, is, is seminal. It's part of the, um, it, we used his textbook in my multicultural perspectives course. And it really feels like I, I, I do, uh, I go over part of the book. I thought I, I might do another video going over another part of the book. I just go over the introduction and I ask you, do you think that this is, that these anecdotes that he cites in his book are written by the same person? Because I, I suspect that this is all manufactured in order to suit his narrative. I don't think that it, there's any rigor in it or any legitimacy in it. And I, you know, that's my opinion, but I, I provide some examples and I ask, what do you think? And are they is, are they cited these examples? Are they case studies? Are they is it qualitative data? Is there does yeah. he show his work? Like <laughs> he spends about the first like a, a big chunk of the book. The introduction is all about how you're probably going to have a really hard time with this. It's kind of like that uh, the struggle session the that you described that little um, mm -hmm. or whatever. So you're going to really have a hard time. You're going to break down over this. This is going to be very difficult for you to reform your thought on this. And, and, and when you do, it's probably because of your, because you're white and, and you're having trouble. <laughs> How convenient. Yeah. And so then he goes into, he wants to give examples. So he gives you examples of how some white people have responded to his teachings and then how some people of color have responded to his teachings. And you read these little vignettes and mm every i mean it really looks to me and it looked to me when i took this course like the same person wrote all of these the same literary yeah. style is just and they and they just they're like absolute caricatures of yeah testimonials are yeah. not academic yeah. research i'm no, sorry like this anecdotes. is marketing this yeah is exactly snake oil Absolutely. it reminds me yeah it reminds me of the uh the book i reviewed about grading for equity it's grading mm -hmm. schemes that do things like they don't um, they don't assign yeah. you know grades or if you, certain grades shouldn't count and it's it's basically a, a huge lowering of standards in in yeah. high school mm -hmm. and the writer does the same thing he says you know listen this is really challenging you're probably going to experience some resistance yeah um but we just want you to keep an open mind and really stretch yourself and yeah. look at this as an opportunity to grow uh you know and he also says he at one point in the book he says um you know, many people like to take the devil's advocate position when mm -hmm. they hear something new. Mm -hmm. I recommend you take the angel's advocate position. Oh my gosh! Or when you when you when you're reading about my ideas, you should take the angel's advocate. Yeah. So I'm like, oh wow, that's so convenient. Yes, we should all be just going along with whatever you say. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's it's yeah. I think I'd love to see that actually. Anything you want to do about this textbook or? you know, exposing this. I think that's really helpful when people dig into it and, and mm -hmm. kind of show it for the fraud it is. Yeah. Um, I think I may, yeah. do, may do another video following up on this. Um, I started with the intro, but I want to dig into the racial identity development models that he presents mm -hmm. because I think that they're, um, I think that they'll really surprise people that this is being taught to counselors. Yeah, this is, this is another thing that's relevant to education in my mm -hmm. field. So would love to see that. Mm -hmm. Leslie, thank you so much for coming on Chalkboard Heresy. We're yeah, having me. 
so pleased to, to hear your story and, and we will link to everything, to all the things. And, um, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you.